Let's pray. Father God, um, we just thank you for the opportunity to be together and to uh, look at your word together. And God, we pray that you'd bless this time. Um, we do lift up the grizzles to you as we're just thinking about them and, um, and hoping to encourage them with some cards. God, we know that this is going to be a difficult time, but we do believe that you're working through this. And so we ask that you continue to work and allow us to be a comfort and an encouragement to this, uh, this beloved couple that we, um, our hearts are with them and our prayers are with them. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thanks for being here, you guys. And uh, it is, you know, it's kind of crazy to think that this Sunday is the 1st of March. You know, I just always feel like February, even though it's only a couple days shorter than the rest of the months, just seems to go by so much faster. I don't know why that is, but um, but I'm excited to move into March because that means spring is on the way. It's going to be really nice. And on that note, um, you guys know that there are several people in our um, group who are snowbirds, as they like, as we like to call them. I don't know. Is that a derogatory term or is that just a term? I don't know. I don't know. But they're snowbirds. They've been down in Arizona, some of them in Hawaii, and in you know tropical, warm locations. And so as they get back, um, once you are able to speak with them and you've overcome your jealousy and your um, your anger at them. Just uh, make sure you remind them that we're here and that we'll be going up until Memorial Day um, weekly uh, studying the scriptures together. It'd be great to start to see some of them coming back. Um, In fact, I know of a couple people who are going to be back this, uh, in the next few days here. So what's that? Yeah, I know. I know. If if you're going to be a snowbird, you might as well stick it out in July. Yeah, that's true. That's that's the progress, you know. They they go for longer and longer and longer, and then they just move down there. Yeah, exactly. All right. So today we're going to look at a pretty familiar passage of Scripture. Um, You know, it's a very common Sunday school passage of Scripture, which as we look at some of the details here, it's going to seem stranger and stranger that this is a a passage that we go to with the youngest Christians because it's kind of bloody. But we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath um, or facing the giant. Um, And this is all in the um, context. Remember, we moved from the stories of Saul as ruler, which came after the stories of Samuel as judge. And uh, we're moving up now to stories of David as king over Israel, uh, God's chosen king. And so right now we're kind of in the the spot where we see the intersection of Saul's long, slow decline into uh, rejection from God into uh, towards his death, and then also uh, just his descent into madness, which are the beginnings of which we're going to see in this passage that we look at. But then also we're going to see David's meteoric rise to fame and to popularity and ultimately to power in Israel. Um, and so that's kind of what we're seeing here is the crisscrossing in the next few chapters, and that's uh, going to be a pretty interesting set of stories that take place over these next few chapters. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to look at uh, starting in First uh, Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. And this is kind of the prelude, a little story unto itself before we get into the, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, but the heading there is, I heard there was a secret chord. You know that from the song. Um, there it goes, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. And that's where, this story is where that comes from. So let's uh, look at that together starting in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. 
And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, uh, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said, uh, sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So, again, just an interesting little story here. Really the beginning of meeting, the meeting of the current king, and really the illegitimate king, because remember, God has rejected Saul as king over Israel, and the new anointed king, who David is already king in the eyes of Yahweh because he's already been anointed and chosen, but he's not yet recognized as the king by the people. And so you see that this is the meeting. This is the beginning of it. And what's really interesting here is that David, who is now the replacement for Saul, is going to be, in this case, the one who actually unburden Saul of the thing that is bothering him, which is a result of his rejection as king by Yahweh. And so you have this really interesting little reversal that's going on there. Uh, Let's take this little section at a time. So now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. So this is an interesting phrase. Some people have interpreted this when it says the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul to be referring to a sort of loss of salvation, right? And that's, I think that that is not really, that does make a lot of sense to me when we look contextually at the Old Testament and at what the, the, you know, the movings of the spirit of God represent in the Old Testament. I think that that's a misinterpretation. But uh, some people have said that this means uh, that Saul loses the Holy Spirit, which means he loses his salvation. Because when we think from a New Testament, Uh, perspective, the Holy Spirit is the gift of God that comes upon the believers at the moment of faith, at the moment of trust in Jesus, and therefore to be saved is to have the Holy Spirit. We don't expect the Holy Spirit to come uh, as a separate sort of gift, but that the Holy Spirit is received at the moment of conversion. And so for it to say that Saul loses the Holy Spirit, if we're reading it through a New Testament prism, then it it helps, we start to think, well, that must mean that he lost his salvation. But that's a very difficult way to look at it because we have to remember that the Old Testament is very different. The Holy Spirit works differently in the Old Testament um, because remember the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has risen into heaven, he's ascended into heaven, the disciples are together, the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. They start prophesying and speaking in tongues so that people who are around them there for this celebration of Pentecost start to hear the gospel preached in their own languages from these men who didn't know the language that they were speaking in. And so you see this, this, these signs and wonders that come through the giving of the Holy Spirit, but that happens in a moment in time. And so Pentecost represents something different. Something has changed from the way that the Spirit worked with human beings before Pentecost that now is different after Pentecost. And so when we look at this with Saul, we have to remember this is a pre-Pentecost action of God's Holy Spirit. 
which then leads us to believe that the Holy Spirit coming upon someone and then leaving someone doesn't represent a conferral and a, and a departure of salvation. It actually represents something different. Because remember, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was given for a specific purpose to a specific person for a specific time. And that's the thing that we see over and over again in the Old Testament. You see, for example, Samson, the judge, he is, um, you know, captured by the Philistines after, you know, repeated disobedience. God's judgment comes that he's captured by the Philistines. He's, you know, caged up and he's, you know, tied to the pillars of the, the house where the Philistines are. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and that's what gives him the strength that comes back to him to perform the task of, you know, bringing down the pillars and eliminating the, the Philistines that had captured him. And so the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is not like, um, well, it, it is the same Holy Spirit. He is the same God. But his actions, the way that he works pre-Pentecost is very different from the way that he works post-Pentecost. And then we remember the words of Jesus in John 3 as well, that the Spirit um, blows where he wishes. He's like a wind that blows where he wishes, right? And so it's kind of a different, uh, you have to remember that the Spirit, as much as we can in the, in the Bible, say this is how the Spirit works, that he comes upon believers in the moment of salvation, that he is the presence and power of Jesus Christ in this age while we await the return of Jesus, that he is a gift that is a sign of the end times that have come among us. You you can say so many true things about the Spirit, but at the same time, by Jesus' own admission, the Spirit has a certain mysteriousness about him, which is just that, as if to say that we can't really document and codify the, the true extent to which the Spirit of God works in our lives and in our world. Because remember, it's the Spirit himself who actually enters into us and enables us to respond to the call of salvation itself. So that when someone preaches the gospel or when someone shares the gospel with an individual, they are so dead in their sins that they can't receive that message of the gospel apart from the Spirit doing the work that's called theologically prevenient grace, which is by which the Spirit enables the person to respond positively and receive Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is mysterious. The Spirit blows where he wishes. He's, he's not some, uh, and this is true of God in, in general, you know, God as Trinity, God the Son, God the Father. We really, there's a, a certain limit to what we can understand and say about who God is, which isn't done to say that we can't say true things about God. We can. We just can't say everything that's true about God because there's a, an indivisible, an uncrossable line between creator and creation. And that's actually something we can rejoice in, that we don't understand everything. And then, you know, I'm really going down a tangent now, and we can say, but someday, you know, when I stand in God's presence, I'll have my list of questions, and, I, and I'll finally learn all the things that I wanted to know. And the truth is that um, maybe that's true, but ultimately every depiction that we have of the eternal bliss of being in the presence of, of Jesus Christ leads me to believe that uh, we don't come to him with our questions and get our answers and be satisfied intellectually, but actually we just bow down and worship before him. So it's learning to be comfortable with the fact that we, yes, can say true things about God, but we can't say everything that is true about God. And that's a beautiful and powerful thing, and that's something for us to rejoice in. All right. Uh, so the other part of this verse, though, it doesn't only say that the... Uh, that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, but actually that the Lord sends a harmful spirit 
to torment him, which might be actually the more troubling part of the phrase, right? That not only does Yahweh say, I'm taking my spirit away from you, Saul, but actually he's going to send, what, and what is this harmful spirit that he sends actually to torture and to torment Saul? That doesn't seem like a very God-like thing to do. Wayne, you had a hand up? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of interesting. In fact, let's let's take a look at something here. Go to my ESV Bible app. If you have that, you can go there as well. Go back to chapter 16. Not too far. Let's check out our cross references here. Chapter 18, verse 10. The next day, so this comes later. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. So the same idea happens later in the text here. 19.9, again, the harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And let's look at Judges 9.23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Sheshem. And the leaders of Sheshem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So only a few times is it mentioned in Scripture as far as we can see there. Um, so what do we make of this harmful, this idea that God sends a harmful spirit upon Saul? And really with it stated that it was with the express purpose of tormenting him. There's a few different things we can say here. Some, you know, what, what, what does it mean, first of all? What is the harmful spirit? Well, some people have suggested that this is a demon, right? That God sends a demon to torment Saul, um, I don't think this is likely, but it's not unlikely because God wouldn't work through evil spirits, because he does, and he has worked through evil spirits. I mean, you can even think about uh, Jesus, who um, commands the spirits to come out of the, the demoniac in the you know, cliffs of, uh, you know, uh, what's the name of the place? I can't remember. Anyway, but he calls them out, and they go into the pigs, and the pigs run off the cliff. Into the, you know, and so the demons are even subject to the will of Yahweh. Right? Even though they're opposed to Yahweh's will, they're still subject to it. They cannot not obey God when he demands that they do something. And so it's possible that it could be a demon, but I think it's unlikely because it isn't explicitly stated here that a harmful spirit is a, uh, a spirit, uh, you know, a spiritual being, an evil spiritual being like a demon. And so we have to actually take some steps to tie those two things really closely together. It's possible. I don't think it's likely. Denny. Uh, what's, what specifically? The... Um, I think so. Anybody think of any examples? Judas. Yeah. Yeah. I think we could certainly say that God works through evil. Most often, what's recorded in Scripture is God working through human evil, right? You have my favorite example in the Joseph story, that you get to the very end of the Joseph story, and Joseph's very statement in Genesis fifty twenty is, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And that's an amazing statement because it has intention, double intention going on there, that 
the human beings, Joseph's brothers, and selling him into slavery and faking his death, you know, and trying to, initially trying to murder him and then just deciding, oh, it's okay, we'll just sell him into slavery instead, as we got off scot-free on that one. Um, but <laughs> that what they intended that was evil, God also intended in the same event for good. And so we have these two things working at the same time, which is so often the thing that plagues us as Christians is how can God allow these things to happen in my life? How can it be that God wants this to happen to me? Or is it that he doesn't want this to happen to me and somebody else has caused this evil to happen in my life? The author of Genesis says, well, both are true. God wants this to happen and he's going to work it for good. Also, evil human beings want this to happen and they're trying to work it for evil. And so God works through evil to produce his good effects in the end, which is a really difficult thing for us to see and for us to understand. And ultimately, um, again, it's not something that we're meant to fully understand. Um, but so, so it could be that God is, is using an evil spirit. It could even be that this evil spirit is sent from Satan to torment Saul. And yet God is also going to use this spirit that is being sent against Saul in order to do something good in his life. So that's a possibility. Another possibility here is that this is actually, notice that it's a harmful spirit. It's not a evil spirit. Whoops. It's not an evil spirit. It's not even an unclean spirit. The word that's chosen there is very purposeful. It's a harmful spirit. In other words, it hurts Saul. It's, injur- it's injurious to him. And so the word um, there could suggest that this is actually an angel sent from God to torment Saul. And so that's also a possibility, which is also you know, very interesting as well. Here's what I think is the most um, likely interpretation here. I think that this is actually an illness that God has sent to Saul and we know that for certain that at least an effect of this harmful spirit is this illness, this madness that Saul begins to descend into toward the end of his life. Um, and yet it's also possible that the harmful spirit is just simply that, that it's a mental illness sent from Yahweh. And, uh, and what's interesting is that this was the term that was used at the time to describe ailments of that kind. So they didn't have modern science. They didn't have a way of describing this other than that it would be a harmful spirit that was sent upon someone. And so whenever you see uh, people who descend into the kind of madness that Saul is going to descend into, it's a similar kind of phrase that's used. Nebuchadnezzar is another example that God sends a harmful spirit op- upon him and that that's what leads to him ultimately Uh, losing his mind and going insane. And so it's possible here that this is one way that God is working to try to wake up Saul, to try to um, get him to move in the right direction here. And uh, and yet what we're going to see over and over again is that this comes upon Saul. He doesn't respond in a positive way, but he he continues in his descent into, into sin, which corresponds to his descent into madness as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. And you remember the end of Romans 1 is that often that the worst punishment of sin or the worst, you know, the worst aspect of sin is just sin itself. That what it says in Romans 1 is that God gave them over to the desires of their hearts. That that's ultimately what the judgment of sin, judgment against sin is, is just God giving you what you want and what you've asked for. That's kind of, you know, what's happening with Saul here is that he's continued to move away from God. He's continued to, to reject God's anointing of him and the position that he has and the kind of responsibilities that come from being the chosen king of God's people. And so it is ultimately the natural progression that God would take his spirit from him. And what he's left with, when the, in the absence of God's spirit, what you're left with are any harmful spirits. You don't have the grounding of that spirit upon you. And so there's a lot that we can learn from this, and really I think it just fits in with that same uh, theme that we see over and over again in Scripture, is that the worst condemnation for sin is just God giving you exactly what you asked for. Yeah, leaving you to your own devices. Yeah, Irma. Yeah, it's very interesting. And and you're right, they actually, yeah, so that's actually good. Let's move on there. But they do actually recognize that it's a harmful spirit from God. And the solution that they have is not seek the Lord, but let's come up with some other, you know, music therapy that we can use to, you know, help you feel better about this. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's look at it. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. So Saul's servants here are not just, you know, servants, but they're actually officials in his, uh, in his royal court. So they, they are his advisors, his viziers, you know, whatever you want to call them. But they're not like, you know, you know, feeding him grapes and stuff. They are his, like, his royal court, his officials. Um, and one of them has this idea that they're going to alleviate Saul's pain through Music And this actually, I think, is further evidence that Saul's harmful spirit is not a demon or an angel, but actually just refers to the, the mental illness that he's dealing with. Because um, there's really no reason that playing music would calm a demon or an angel, especially if that's an angel that's been sent by Yahweh for a purpose. There's really no reason to believe that that would work. That's kind of some weird, you know, pop theology going on there. But there is reason to believe that music could soothe someone who's dealing with some mental pain and turmoil. Um, that's actually something that we know can happen. And so I think that might be further evidence there. And so Saul decides to go along with the plan here. Um, and what's interesting is uh, what happens next here. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and Yahweh is with him. So one of the servants thinks he knows someone who fits the bill, who can play the harp well enough to, um, to calm Saul down. And he's described this way. First of all, he's a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. 
And so his family and hometown are mentioned, kind of his address. I know a guy who lives in Bethlehem. His dad's name is Jesse. He's skilled in playing. So he's a musician. So we know that even at this point, and we're going to know from the next chapter here that David at this point is a youth, which is kind of a not very well-defined range of ages. So I'm not going to attempt to say how old he was, but we know that in the eyes of the people, he was a youth. He wasn't fu- a full-grown man yet. And so he's at this point, he's a musician. He's uh, in the fields, uh, at, back at home in Bethlehem. It's also mentioned, though, that he's a man of valor. So he's courageous. And one of the things that we mentioned a couple weeks ago is that Jonathan has this streak in him that he is a, what we might call a berserker, right? He's willing to run into battle with his armor bearer alone and go to slaughter the Philistines. David also has this streak in him. And so this is a theme we're going to see in First and Second Samuel. It's kind of the boldness and the confidence and really just this kind of um, almost insanity of going into battle single-handedly because, which is, you know, it's grounded in a trust in Yahweh. And that actually helps us to make sense of why it's not just bold, uh, you know, brash behavior, but it's actually uh, someone who is deep, who trusts deeply in God's power. And that leads them to then say that they can can, um, ultimately pursue God's will at all costs. And that's really the truth. When you're certain of God's will, there's really nothing that should stop you or that should dissuade you in pursuing that will. The problem is we're not often all that confident in God's will that we know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that's definitely uh, at least part of it. Yeah. He's bringing David into the court. He's also a man of war, it mentions, which means that he's skilled in combat. And this is going to be interesting because later on we're going to see that he's not considered someone who is a skilled soldier at this point. So this could just mean that he's kind of known for his physical abilities, you know, that he's strong, that he's tough. Uh, It says he's prudent in speech, which means he's well-spoken. He's got a winning personality, that kind of thing. Uh, He's good at winning others over. Um, It says he's a man of good presence, and that's an idiom in Hebrew that means he's good-looking. He's a handsome guy. So he's a man of good presence. Just It's not that you know he carries himself well. He's, he's a good-looking guy. He's pleasing to the eyes. And then uh, finally, most importantly, Yahweh is with him. And remember that at this point, David has received the Holy Spirit. He's received the anointing from Samuel to be king over God's people. And for whatever it's worth, this person in Saul's royal court is aware that there's a unique presence of Yahweh in the life of David, this shepherd boy in Bethlehem. And so it's very interesting that he already has a reputation in the highest levels of the government at this point. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. So little does Saul know that as he's seeking help with this affliction, which is an affliction that's caused by his loss of God's spirit and his loss of God's anointing, 
that in seeking to, to help to alleviate that affliction, he's actually invited into his home and his royal court, the one who now has God's spirit and anointing, which have just been taken from Saul. So you have a little bit of dramatic irony going on here. Saul has no idea that this person who he's invited into his life in this moment in order to help him alleviate this pain that comes, which is the beginning symptoms of his descent into madness and his loss of the kingdom and ultimately the loss of his life, he has no idea that the one that he's invited is ultimately going to be the agent of that decline and fall of his role. That, that David is going to be the one who wins over the hearts of the people of God and who has already uh, received the anointing of God. And so there's really an interesting interaction that's going on here. But not only that, but it says um, that as David, David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul said, uh, sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. That's not going to last very long here. Um, Saul initially is a big fan of David. And the idiom that, that Saul loved him greatly doesn't imply that he has like some sort of deep affection for David. But it's actually uh, more just that Saul's impressed by him. It's kind of like saying Saul liked him a lot. Saul really liked David. He enjoyed having David in his service. And so he asks Jesse not just to say, you know, he he came, he had the audition, he had the job interview, he's got the job, please let him stay and serve me in the palace here. And uh, and that's going to be an important thing uh, for Jesse is that, remember, he's seen the anointing of David. The whole family has seen that David was anointed as king. And now they're starting to see okay, God is working out this path for David to become the new king of the people of Israel. Because you have to wonder how much they really believed and how much they really knew as a family what was going to happen here. You know, Samuel, who anointed David, he's old. He doesn't always make sense. He seems, you know, the character that's sketched out in the scriptures here is that Samuel's kind of a, you know, an old, uh, you know, hard to follow, you know, just this old ecstatic prophet, and so how much did they really trust what he was doing? Maybe they kind of watched the whole procession and said, okay, that was weird. Thanks, Samuel. You know, go on your way now, you know. But now they're starting to see that what Samuel said is coming true, which, remember, is the thing that we saw way back in Samuel, that that's kind of the way he's introduced, is that he's a prophet, and whatever he said came true. So it's starting to be true here as well. And so Saul is so taken with David, he asked Jesse to give him to the service. And then this last statement, verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So again, David, the one filled with the Holy Spirit, plays his lyre, and it soothes Saul, the one who has lost the Holy Spirit and is afflicted with the harmful spirit from God. The lyre here, just kind of an interesting... Uh, factoid. Let's see, where is it? There we go. Um, probably looks like this because, um, so this is a reconstruction over here on this side of the screen. Um, and it's taken from, you see this thing right here? It's not a great photo quality, but you kind of see the instrument that the guy's holding there. This inscription was found at a place called Tel Megiddo, um, which you may have been to if you've been to Israel before. Um, there's this, it's this big old hill that's been, you know, excavated and all these different layers because over, you know, generations and generations, city built upon city, built upon city. And so they found this inscription at Megiddo and uh, the, the lyre being played there 
in this inscription dates uh, close to the time of David. And so when we picture the, the lyre or the harp that he's playing, it probably looked a lot like this. Uneven on two sides, the strings tied up to the bar across the top, coming down to where they're tied in at the bottom, and then they would have been plucked like this. And then you can also even see from the way he's holding it, the way that it would have been done. So you can see it's tucked under one arm. So he's got it under one arm like that. And then he's reaching out with the other, it looks like, to hold it on the other side while he plays with the arm that it's tucked underneath, which kind of might remind you of playing a guitar, right? <laughs> Things seem to stay pretty much the same when it comes to, you know, music in a lot of ways. There's a continuity and some new things that change over time. But um, the other thing to note, it really is, it's, it could have been anywhere between 200 to 500 years uh, from the time of David, before the time of David was when this was inscribed. And so we're really looking more at the time of the judges here. And you just have to remember that that time frame there is a pretty long amount of time if we think in terms of our time. Like we'd be thinking back to, I don't know, the American founding, you know? So would you find something from, you know, a musical instrument from the American founding and say, well, this is what they played in worship at Southside Christian Church? On, you know, in Spokane. It's like, well, not exactly, but there are a lot of similarities. You know, they did have, um, you know, like what's the difference between a violin that you'd find back then and a violin that you'd find now? Not a whole lot. And yet there's also a lot of things that have changed. And so is this exactly what it looked like for David? We don't really know, but it's actually the best guess that we have at what that that instrument that he played might have looked like. And that just also lends it, I think, lends so much depth to when we think about not only this passage, uh, but also others where David's going to be playing his harp and, you know, to calm Saul. But then also just think about the, the Psalms. Think about David, the king, the, the songwriter of Israel, composing his music, playing on the harp as he does. You know, it's just very interesting to kind of think, what did that look like? What was that like? So, yeah, Kathy. Yeah, it, it looks a lot like a regular harp nowadays, yeah. Yeah, one's higher up than the other, yeah. I don't know. I guess because the strings get shorter, makes the, the tone higher as they go down. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I just think, so the further up, the longer the string is, the lower the tone is going to be. So as you go down this way, it's going to be higher, which on a guitar is done by tightening the string at the top. So they all appear to be the same length, but they're tightened. Um, same thing on like a, um, on most stringed instruments that we see today. But actually this looks more like what you'd see inside a piano, right? So I don't know if this is still has the harp inside of it, but like the reason that it's shaped, might get some interference being right in front of this thing. The reason that it's shaped like this it's because some of the strings on this side are a heck of a lot shorter as, than they are as they get this direction. And so get the low end on one side and the high end on the other. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, that's what they're doing there. Yeah, there's a procession with instruments being played. And yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's David's a very interesting and complicated character in the scriptures because you know, for us especially to think of him as the warrior who's, you know, going to be, you know, slaying his tens of thousands and then also the one playing the harp and writing the beautiful music. Those things especially for us don't fit together very well. Uh back then they might have fit together a little bit better because you think about most of the time music was used as, you know, marching into battle, you know, to keep them going into battle and you know that the uh the the bands of Israel, the musical bands of Israel marched with the um, with the troops into battle, and so there's a there's a connection there. Um, but it's he's a very multifaceted and, and interesting character. He's got the boldness associated there, but he also has a certain humility that he's always ready to repent when he needs to. Um, he has um, he's the man after God's own heart, and yet he is constantly being pulled away from from Yahweh as well. And so he's very multifaceted. And so as, as we go forward in the David story here, it's good to keep in mind that whatever image comes into your mind when you think of David, whether that's positive or negative, there's more to him than that. And, uh, and really, remember that the books of First and Second Samuel capture in them certain character sketches. That's part of the author's intention is for us to look at these different characters of Samuel and Saul and David and Solomon and to look at them and see ourselves in them. To try to see the certain spiritual uh, habits and spiritual um, dispositions that we have in these characters that are right in front of us. And that becomes more and more clear as we see how these characters are compared with one another that Saul becomes a foil for David and, and Solomon becomes a foil for both of them. And so we're, we're, we are called and we are actually directed to compare these different characters and then to look at ourselves and see what we see of ourselves in them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's uh, let's press on here, and now we'll get into the the main event, uh, the, the uh, David and Goliath. So, first of all, the Philistine, in uh, starting in first, verse one of chapter seventeen. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soco, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soco and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David uh, whoops, was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And, David, or, and Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. And, also, and take also these ten cheeses to the commander of, the, of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were, very, and were uh, much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. It's a pretty long section of scripture here. But what's interesting is that this passage, uh, there's, a, there's a certain narrative artistry that's going on because you see that things are stated and restated. And, uh, and it's almost like there's a certain um, anticipation of what's coming. And so this is a, one of the reasons that this story has, has so gotten into people's heads one of the reasons that it's, it's just one of the classic Bible stories is that it's told so well. You know, you have this real sense of anticipation that even as you know what's going to happen, you almost feel like that sense of anticipation. What's going to happen here? Who's going to face the giant? Why is David coming into the camp? And why is he so bold? And what's going to happen here? And so it's really interesting the way that it's told. So let's take this a little uh, section at a time. And the, the sections are a little bit bigger than they normally are. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So let's get our bearings here. So go ahead and grab that map that I gave you if it, if it helps you. And please ignore the fact that it says it's not licensed on there. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> I couldn't get it off of there without paying for it, so... You know, what's up with that? Uh, so 
The uh, Philistines, it says, first of all, they're gathered at Soko, or same as Shoko over here. So we'll use blue to show the Philistines. So they're camped here at, at Shoko, Soko, um, and then also at Azeka, which is right nearby, right there, Azeka. And remember that the Philistine territory basically runs through here and then down south, and the other city that's up here so we've got Gath, which is a major city. You see Gaza is over here as well, but we won't, that's not, doesn't really play in here. But the other one is Ekron, which is up here. So those are some key, these are the two of the key cities of the Philistines. Uh, they've got about five uh, key cities that belong to them. Ekron and Gath are two of them. So what's essentially happened here is that they've moved in on the Israelite territory from Ekron to Azekah, presumably, and from Gath to Soko. And so they're pressing inward into Israelite territory, occupying it, and uh, really getting ready for a battle here. The Israelites, we'll put them in green, they're camped over here. We don't really get a name of a city where they're camped, but it does say that they're in the valley of Elah, which is right between these two areas with kind of a... um, a peak on each side, uh, Soko being one of them, and then this area over here. So this is probably an approximate location of Saul's camp, where he's lined up to come out to meet them. And remember that Saul's base of operations is over here in Gibeah. And so Saul has moved in over here, coming up to the border, up to meet them at the Valley of Elah. So the, the scene here is set for the showdown. Um, The other interesting thing, you have the statement of uh, Ephesh Damim, and that uh, has been interpreted different ways. Does anybody have a different translation? It says something other than Ephesh Damim there. So where it says that they were encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephesh Damim. Anybody? Same thing. So some of the older translations actually translate that phrase. Um, so a lot of the newer ones, like the ESV that we're reading from, just put the Hebrew word in there. But the, the phrase in Hebrew means the boundary of blood. And I actually think that that's not only cool sounding, but it's actually, I think, a reference to the fact that we're talking about the, the far out uh, corner of you know, contention between the Israelite territory and the Philistine territory. So I don't actually think that it is referring to a geographical, you know, or a, a name, a place name, Efesh Damim. I think it is referring to the boundary of blood, Efesh boundary, Damim blood. Yeah. Oh, we'll get there, Bobby. Don't you worry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. I'll do my best. Yeah. All right. Any questions on the map there? Okay, so the other thing to remember is just the elevation. So, again, this is the valley in here. You've got two peaks on both sides. And then just in general, what we see that is the natural boundary for the Philistine territory is what's called the Israeli uh, Shephala, which follows along that line, which is this steep rise up into the mountains. So remember that Israelites traditionally 
are the hill people, right? They live in the hill country. The Philistines dwell on the alluvial coastal plain over here. And so the natural boundary in between is the Israeli Shephelah, which is where you rapidly gain elevation heading up toward the territory of the, the Israelites, which then breaks down on the other side as you come down toward the Dead Sea over here. And so you have, um, which is just always interesting to remember, that there's two very different peoples and very different cultures. The Israelites came out of, you know, ultimately out of uh, the territory up north, uh, northeast of where they are now. But then they were, they ended up as slaves in Egypt. They came out of Egypt and ended up in the land. The Philistines, we, um, a lot of people more and more are associating the Philistines with the sea people invasion that came in and really actually almost overthrew and eliminated Egypt, which means that they probably came from the Aegean Sea, so over from Greece and from and Rome and those areas over there. And so you just have a clash of cultures and a clash of peoples. You've got the, the coastal people who, and their god is a fish god, and so their their uh, armor. When it when it talks about Goliath's uh, chain mail, his coat of mail that he has, it they the these are pieces of iron that rep, that uh, resemble fish scales. And then you have the hill people, the shepherding, uh, you know, culture of uh, of Israel, and they're very different. And remember that they don't have as advanced weapons as the other team. And so it really helps us to think through just all the little details that we can remember as we've gone through the scriptures up to this point, and all the different resources that we have uh, to remember just how uh, rich the depictions of these really can be when we bring the context to bear upon the text. So let's go ahead and move on there, though. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze, a coat of mail, a heavy coat of mail, a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze between his shoulders, and a big old spear with a shaft like a weaver's beam and the spear's head that weighs a lot, and then a shield bearer as well. So I just didn't want to read through that all again. So first of all, he's a champion of the Philistines. Is that just to say, oh, he's a real champion? You know, he's a tough guy. No, what, what it's actually referring to here is a common military practice called the contest of champions, which is essentially exactly what Goliath ends up describing here. That each army, in order to avoid, you know, deep loss of life and bloodshed, nominate a champion to go in and they do hand-to-hand combat in the, you know, in the middle of these two armies, and whoever wins that, that, um, bec- that uh, group of people, that tribe, that nation, becomes the oppressors of the other tribe or nation or people. And so what is going on here is not something new, but it's a common practice at the time. And Goliath represents the champion that they're sending out, uh, hoping that Israel will give them a champion as well. And then what we see here is that uh, this Philistine named Goliath This description here is the most detailed description of any person in the Bible, which is really interesting. Most detailed physical description. You don't get this for anyone else. You don't get this for David. You don't get this for um, any of the prophets. You don't get this for Jesus. We get hardly any physical description of what Jesus looked like, except a mention in, in uh, Isaiah that there was nothing in his appearance that would you know, help lead us to believe that there was anything special about him. That doesn't tell us very much about what he looked like. It just tells us what he didn't look like, right? Um, and yet Goliath, this one guy who is not really in the Bible for very long, he's going to be dead by the end of our time together today, 
he gets this, this massive, long description of all the details about him. Depending on how big a cubit was, uh, which there is some debate on that, it's just really great to remember that certain people dedicate their lives to arguing over how big a cubit is. Um, he's between seven and a half and nine and a half feet tall. So however you want to slice it, especially looking back at how tall people were in antiquity, um, he's really, really stinking tall. And, uh, and it, also, if you want to know, if you want to get a sense of how tall people used to be, how tall they used to get, go down to the Mac, to the um, Pompeii exhibit that they have down there, and they've got a couple of those plaster uh, uh, casts of where they found, right, so you know the story of Pompeii, Vesuvius erupts, and people are trapped under the magma and under the smoke and the, you know, the ash, and a lot of people die, and they, you know, kind of die in position there. Uh, it's kind of morbid, but then their, their bodies decompose, but the ash has hardened into a certain uh, shape. And so way back, you know, 100 years ago, this guy in Italy is like, has this great idea for an art installation where he's going to pour plaster into these molds to kind of get the shapes of people, which is really interesting. And there's like only a couple of them at the exhibit down at the Mac. But what you see from those people is that they are tiny and also you can see this, this uh, bathtub that was taken from the time, and you're going to look at that thing and be like, oh my gosh, look how small this bathtub is. You know, the you know, modern American would be in there, like, you know, all squeezed up and, you know, there's no room. So people were pretty small back then. And so a seven and a half foot tall person we would think of as tall, for them, it really is a giant. And so that's when they call Goliath the giant, as they will um, later on here. They mean it. The guy is huge. And he could have been even as tall as nine and a half uh, feet. His armor's bronze, and it covers his entire body. He has a bronze helmet, bronze greaves on his shins, uh, bronze coat of chain mail, which, again, we said would have uh, resembled fish scales. Altogether, uh, Goliath's armor alone weighs about 125 pounds by the description that's given here. Um, he has a bronze javelin, which is a projectile weapon used in battle. And that's not even going to be used. That's just swung in between his shoulders on the back. Um, he has a spear, and the head is made of iron, which is a rare and a precious metal at this time. Um, and the shaft, the main part of the, you know, the, the wooden part of the uh, spear, is compared to a weaver's beam, which is the leash rod of a loom. And at that time, you know, we're talking about, remember the, um, the temple has these enormous thick curtains. And so oftentimes uh, when they were building tents, which were the primary uh, dwelling places of people at that time, you were using some thick materials. And so a weaver's beam is going to be a, a log around. And so what it's talking about here is that he's got this huge, you know, spear, which, you know, because he's a giant is probably small and regular size in his hands. And so all of this is here to underscore just how formidable a foe Goliath really is. And then ultimately, finally, to top it all off, he has his own shield bearer, who we assume is a normal-sized human being, who carries his shield to protect him in battle, which is not a job that I would want to have. You know, Think about like Captain America's cool, and he has a shield and, and no weapon, but you don't really want to be the guy running into battle carrying somebody else's shield. right? That just doesn't sound like a very good job. So that's the description of Goliath, pretty detailed there. Um, and, uh, and again, just underscores how frightening this guy really is and the prospect of facing him one-on-one. Yeah, Kathy.
Well, yeah, he's not just a tall, skinny guy. You know, he's a fearsome warrior. And that's, I guess, just uh, implied by... Uh, I, yeah. I mean, think about, like, a, like a bigger, taller Schwarzenegger or something. I don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah. In fact, maybe we could read his words in here with a Schwarzenegger accent. You know, that might make it more, might evoke more of what's going on there. All right, let's move on. So then the giant speaks. It says, he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Now pause there for a second. When he says, am I not a Philistine? What he is actually saying there is that he is, am I not the Philistine, which is what he's going to be referred to over and over again in this passage. And the Philistine did this and the Philistine did that. And so as the champion who's going out there, he knows that he represents the whole people of the Philistines. He's like, I am the Philistine and you are the servants of Saul. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we, the Philistines, will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. It's like, duh, what else is a servant going to do? And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And so here he gives the invitation to that contest of champions that we talked about. Israel is to send down a warrior, one warrior, to face off against the fearsome Goliath. Whoever wins the battle this fight to the death, will win superiority for their nation. And that means then that they're going to enter into a a treaty, a covenant, where one person is, you know, the one who's going to receive all the political power and all the tribute, and the other ones are going to be the servants of that greater power. And it's all going to come down to who wins the battle here. And again, notice Goliath's tone. He's the Philistine. He is sure of himself that he's going to win the contest, that the Israelites could not possibly find someone who is worthy to face the challenge that he's giving them. Next, when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's see where it was. Okay, there we go. And greatly afraid. So Saul and all his mighty men, the whole army of Israel, sees the guy, hears the challenge, and they're afraid. No one has the courage to go out and face Goliath. And then we cut back to David. We, he gets introduced again for some reason. Again, it's just the telling of the story, the narrative artistry, the anticipation. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle, and the names of his three sons were Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, and David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And so David, even though he's in the royal court of Saul as his musician, that, you know, the one who calms him down when the harmful spirit comes upon him. He's doing that part-time, and he's going back and forth and back and forth between what would have been, let's see, they're not really that far apart, but Bethlehem, let's see, how are we going to, let's do yellow for David. So David's in Bethlehem, Saul in green is up in Gibeah, and so David would have gone back and forth between Gibeah and Bethlehem and making his rounds up and back to keep the flocks back in Bethlehem, then to go all the way up to Gibeah to serve the king. 
In this case, he's about to make the journey all the way to Saul's camp on the, uh, the edge of the Valley of Elah from Bethlehem. All told, that's about uh, 12 miles between Bethlehem and Saul's camp. Not too far. So it, uh, it, it's pretty close, the battle that's taking place to home for uh, Jesse and his family. Um, let's see. So da- three of David's older brothers are in the army there at the base, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema, and David is making his way back and forth. Then it says, for 40 days, the Philistine, Goliath, came forward, took his stand morning and evening. So twice a day, he comes out to give this same message. And then back, what's that? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Um, and then back in Bethlehem, Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, these 10 loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses, nice little cheese plate that he's made up there, to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So Goliath continues to give them the challenge twice a day. Jesse sends David out to the battlefield, probably wondering if there's any news, right? Because he knows that his sons have gone into battle. They've gone those 12 miles over to the Valley of Elah. He hasn't heard anything. And we know that the Philistine continues to go out for 40 days, to make this challenge twice a day, Jesse's probably wondering, what is going on? What, I mean, did everybody get wiped out? Where are they? And so he sends his youngest son to go and to give them some provisions and also to get a token, which means a token of their well-being to show that they're okay back to Jesse. Something for him as a father to hold on to. And it says, Saul and all the men of Israel... Uh, We're in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. He came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So here's the scene. David's coming into the camp. The people on both sides, the Philistines and the Israelites, have come flooding down into the valley of Elah, you know, going out to chase each other, to go out to battle with one another. David comes in at the moment that this is happening, drops the stuff off, runs over to them to go find out what's happening, and then it says, uh, he comes out to greet his brothers as they're going into battle, and as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So that's the scene that's going on here. When it says the host came running down, they're about to run in and clash in battle when the big giant steps up and says, I will be the champion of the Philistines. Send me a champion to fight against me. And so everybody stops. So dramatic what's going on here. These two armies running in. One guy steps up. They all turn and run back the other direction. And David is there, who's just come into this, witnesses this whole scene, and that leads us to the next thing that's going to happen here. It says, uh, the men of Israel said, and they're all just talking amongst themselves, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And then they reveal this little detail here. The king, Saul, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. So what are the benefits of whoever decides to step up and face the the giant if, by some miracle, they're able to beat this giant in a hand-to-hand combat? The king will, first of all, enrich the man uh, with great riches. He will give him his daughter... 
and make his father's house free in Israel. So wealth, marrying into the, the royal family, and then also this idea that the making the father's house free means that they're going to be tax-exempt, which is pretty sweet. So it's a pretty nice little benefits package that the king is offering for the champion of Israel should he be able to win. And it might actually show that Saul doesn't expect that anybody is going to be able to do it. Not only let alone willing to do it, but anybody's going to be able to beat Goliath. And then David responds. He says, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So notice that um, in the language that's used here, there's a couple different uh, statements here. So first of all, let's look at what the men of Israel say. He's come up, this guy, uh, Goliath, has come up to defy Israel. David says, He defies the armies of the living God. It's very different. David sees this whole situation different from everybody else who's in this moment. They're terrified. They don't see a way to victory. David sees this through a different eternal perspective and recognizes that, as he's going to say in a moment, and in the next section that we see here, that he is... The, the battle is Yahweh's, that he is in control. And again, we see that the confidence, the boldness, what we see as maybe this, um, this immature uh, confidence in himself is actually a deep and mature confidence in Yahweh. Let's move on. I'm going to be trying to be mindful of time here. So we've still got a lot to go. <laughs> Verse 28. So now we see the champion of Israel step up. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he, Saul, sent for him, David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, the giant. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David in his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. 
Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So first of all, just look briefly at these couple verses from the, the oldest brother of David, Eliab, who, remember, was passed over just in the last chapter here, that when Samuel comes, Jesse assumes it's going to be the firstborn who's going to be anointed as the king of Israel, and he's rejected. He's not the one that, uh, that God chooses to anoint, but it's actually the youngest, David. So Eliab, probably still mad about that, is angry to see David there at the battle, accuses him of kind of being a looky-loo, right, that he just came to see the bloodshed um, and the spectacle. And what's kind of interesting to remember is that that's not actually uncommon in ancient times. Even all the way up to the Civil War, the American Civil War, there was this tradition of people going out to watch the battle happen. And so sometimes you'll see it Civil War reenactments that some people get all dressed up in the time period and they go have a picnic and overlook the battle. And that actually was something that happened back then. The war, the battles were a spectacle, something to go and watch. Kind of interesting. Nowadays, I guess we channel that into football games and stuff like that instead, which is probably a lot more healthy, but uh, there you go. Um, And so then David turns from him, and he continues. It says he spoke in the same way. The people answered him again as before, and then people tell the king that this kid, this youth, is going through the whole camp talking about how this uncircumcised Philistine is defying the armies of the living God. So then it says uh, that Saul sent for him. David's boldness starts to get a reputation in the camp. The king finds out about it and says, basically wants to, seems like he just wants to find out what's going on. So he calls uh, David to him. Notice that David here is going to speak first. It says, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant himself, David, will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul immediately shoots back to him, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him because you're a youth and he's been a man of war since his youth, from his youth. And so Saul understandably doesn't want to send a shepherd boy out to battle the giant um, he's likely a young man at this point, maybe even a teenager, but he, Saul doesn't want to send him out as the champion of Israel. And his reasoning is that David's only a youth, whereas Goliath has been this warrior, this man of war, since he was David's age. And then David's response is very interesting there, where he appeals to fighting what? Fighting bears and lions who come and took lambs from his flock, chasing them down, killing them, retrieving the sheep. And then he makes the statement, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David's not going to be dissuaded by Saul's pragmatism here. Saul, again, is not looking at this through the eyes of faith. He's saying, You cannot, as a young man, beat this skilled giant. You're not going to be able to win. David appeals to his experience. But notice here that even as he's saying, you know, I've done it before. I've fought off bears and lions, which is pretty impressive in its own right. It's not actually David saying, I beat them, those wild animals, so I can beat this skilled warrior. It's actually him saying that Yahweh has delivered me from the bears and from the lions, so I have confidence that in this situation, the greater situation, that Yahweh's going to deliver me now. So how does that work out? 
Well, he's confident because he knows that in a situation where it was just David's health that was at stake, or even the financial gain that stood to have this lamb rescued from the clutches of the lion or the bear, if God cares about that, and he's going to deliver the sheep, and he's going to deliver David out of those situations, then he has confidence that Yahweh is going to deliver David from the hand of the Philistine who is threatening the honor and glory of Yahweh. So David's confidence here is not based on, well, I've been able to fight off wild animals before, but actually God protected me in those small situations, so I have confidence he's going to protect his people in this big situation. It's all about his confidence in Yahweh. And so Saul says, go, and Yahweh be with you. And then he tries to put his armor on him. And when Saul tries to do this, um, you know, I, I think of the Veggie Tales episode where you've got you know, a little junior asparagus playing the role of, uh, of David and they try to put all you know, the big armor on him and he can't move because it's too big. You know? um, that might be what's going on here. You know, his armor's too big. But what he just says is that he hasn't tested them. So David doesn't want to go out with all this extra weight on him. Because again, what you see here is the same two different perspectives about Goliath colliding here. Saul says, you can't go out there. You're not skilled in war. David says, it doesn't matter because Yahweh is the one who's going to win the battle. Saul says, okay, you can go out there, but first we're going to put all this armor on you so that when Goliath comes at you, you can be protected from him battling against you. David says, I don't need that stuff because he's confident in Yahweh. And so again, you have these two different perspectives. The rejected, faithless king who sees it through the eyes of pragmatism, and you have the young man, the anointed king, who sees it through the eyes of faith. And then we're left expecting to see what's going to happen next. And the final note in this section, that David goes down to the brook, and he picks five smooth stones and puts them in his pouch. And then it says he approached the Philistine. David chooses to go into battle with a sling and stones and a staff that he brings with him, basically the tools of a shepherd, to go up against, again, this this giant, this Philistine, who has the most detailed physical description in the Bible in order to spell out just how technologically advanced and how prepared for battle he was. And so here we have the stage that's set for God to show up. The only way that this young shepherd boy with a sling and some stones is going to beat the nine and a half foot tall giant who is clothed head to toe in bronze and has all these weapons at his disposal and a shield bearer next to him is if Yahweh wins the battle. And as we'll see in this next section, the battle is Yahweh's by David's own statement to the Philistine. Any quick questions before we move on here? Okay, let's wrap it up. Looks like I missed a verse here. Sorry. So, uh, verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. So there it is again, that David is handsome in appearance. And by the way, any time in the Old Testament someone is singled out for being good-looking, it is usually a death sentence. You know, David's going to do pretty well, but... Uh, you see that in Genesis, uh, Rachel is, sing- is singled out for being good-looking, and then what happens right after that? She's barren. 
You know, you see that Joseph is singled out for being good look, good looking. What happens after that is death is faked and he's sold into slavery. It's usually a bad thing to be good looking. So most of us in the room can feel good about that. Um, just kidding. Okay. <laughs> Verse 30, 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to, said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When you see David's little speech here, it again underscores, why is this a story that we lead with for our kids? It's very interesting when he says, I am going to strike you down and cut off your head and give the dead bodies of your people to be food for the birds. It's like in your little storybook Bible, you can find that in there. Hopefully not illustrated. Um... When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And if we stop at verse 50, then we get the whole Sunday school story. If we go on to verse 51, we see a little bit more detail here. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, the Philistine's sword, and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'ariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, get this, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So, going all the way back to the beginning, the Philistine moves forward, came near, he sees David with his shield bearer in front of him. And the Philistine looked and saw David, and he disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. So quite a striking scene. Goliath, nine feet tall, decked out in heavy armor, armed with a javelin, a sword, and a spear, followed by his personal shield bearer, squares up with David, a young shepherd boy with a staff, carrying a sling and some stones, no armor on him. Quite a scene, which is why, again, it has this living 
power that we, this is one of the classic stories of the Bible for that very image right there. Then uh, Goliath, the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Probably talking about his staff. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And remember the gods of the Philistines, Dagon, the god, who when the, uh, the um, Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and put in the temple of Dagon, the, the statue was found, fall, fell on the ground with its head lopped off and its hands cut off, which is going to be the same fate, at least half of that, for the Philistine in a moment here. Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then in that next section, you see just the words of David. And I won't read them again, but just recognize that this is the climax of the story. David's words here show us what is in his heart. And they're meant to teach us something about the nature of faith. First of all, notice David's boldness is not based on his confidence in himself, but in his confidence in Yahweh. The battle is Yahweh's, that last sentence, and he will give you into our hand. Second, notice David is certain of the outcome. He doesn't, there's no healthy doubt that we try to have in David's mind. He says, this is going to happen. He doesn't even say, Lord willing, this will happen, but actually the Lord wills that this will happen because he knows, he believes in a God who protects his people. He believes that he is confident in God's will here. And then finally, notice in that last line that David sees himself as a representative of God's people and not just as a lone wolf. Sometimes when we think about this story, we think about the the man of faith facing the giant. David is full of faith and he's full of confidence in Yahweh that Yahweh is going to protect him. But ultimately, David doesn't see it that way. David sees this as God using him to vindicate himself and his people. David is full of the confidence of Yahweh, but it's not based on God that is just going to protect him, but actually that God is not going to let this Philistine, this evildoer, to speak against the glory of God. Then we have the battle description there. David had picked five stones, but he only needed one. On the first shot, he nails the giant right between the eyes. Doesn't necessarily kill him, but it stuns him. He falls down on the ground, and then David uses Goliath's own sword to behead him. (laughs) Don't miss the grittiness of the Bible story. Like so many others that we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is that this is a a powerful story, and, and this is part of it. That David, full of confidence and full of courage that comes from Yahweh, actually goes out and makes this strong statement here as a sign to God's people and as a sign to their enemies as well. And then finally you have this this note that they are pushed all the way back. So we can look back at our map if I can find it here. There we go. So remember they had come all the way up from Gath and from Ekron. The note that's shown here is that they are pushed back to those places and that the Philistines pursue them all the way back to there. So essentially what had happened, you see, they had pressed in the boundary here. They're pushed back to where they, where they belong, and they're killed all the way. And then the, the people come back, and they loot the, uh, the camp that they had been at. Um, note here that uh, the, uh, when it says that David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem, 
That doesn't actually happen until a lot later. And this happens sometimes in the Bible because they don't tell the story, tell stories the same way that we do. We'd be pretty annoyed by a note of something that happens a long time later. But actually, it just doesn't make sense to say that David goes to the camp, he picks up the head, he goes all the way to Jerusalem, you know, takes a, day, a few days' trip, drops the head off at Jerusalem, which is not even uh, a city of the, the Israelites at this time, and then goes all the way back to the Valley of Elah and picks up the... the um, the armor and puts it in his tent and then goes and talks to the to Saul because he has the head in his hand when he goes and talks to Saul. And so the the head of Goliath, as disturbing as it's going to be uh, to hear this, becomes a character in the books of First and Second Samuel. It's not the last that we're going to see of his head. It's going to be taken by David to all these different places and used for these different, uh, these different moments. Also, the sword of Goliath is going to remain in David's possession. And so all of this is to show that this is a decisive moment in the life of David. This is the beginning of his rise, and it's going to become a reminder. I can't pause for questions right now. Sorry, I've got to get to the end here. Um, and then at the end, you have this description of Saul who doesn't know who David is. Now, that might be a problem for us, right? A um, couple different possibilities here. So remember that uh, David's got to find out, maybe the reason that he asks whose, whose son is this is because, remember, he's made a, an offer to whoever the champion is that he's going to enrich that person's family and make them tax-exempt and, and give them his daughter in marriage. And so it's kind of important that he figures out right now who this you know, and it's really an interesting little dramatic moment here is that he pulls Abner aside and he's like, hey, just in case this works out, who am I going to be owing all this money to? And so he, he kind of pulls him aside. And then in the end, he's vindicated. Nobody knows whose son it is. And so he goes and he grabs him and brings him before Saul with the head in his hand, which is just a great little scene there. Um, and then he asks him himself, whose son are you? And he reminds him of who it is. So a couple possibilities. Could just be, just doesn't remember who son it is. You know, he knows that he's the, the musician that has been in his court, but he doesn't know whose family it is. But another possibility is just that, uh, and I think this is more likely, um, is that this is to suggest Saul's increasing illness here. Saul is never going to be the same the rest of this book. And it's just, I think, a reminder here that Saul doesn't know who David is because Saul doesn't know who anybody is. The guy is, he's losing his mind. And it's really pretty tragic, the descent into madness that we see for Saul here. But this isn't going to be the first time where Saul doesn't know what he should know. Where Saul doesn't uh, seem to have a full grasp of the facts of the situation. And so really, we see by the end of this story, the harmful spirit that was introduced at the beginning has already begun to have such an effect on Saul's mind. I believe that that's what the note is here to show that he's already losing his grasp on reality. All right. Brief moment of application here. Facing your giants. Question mark? Facing your giants? (laughs) Because the question is, who is facing whom? Um... Oftentimes, the application that we get from David and Goliath is all about, you know, David faced a giant because he was confident in Yahweh. So you can face whatever your giant is in your life because you're confident in God. That could be an okay thing to say, but I want to caution us here. Of course, trusting in God can help us face hard times, big challenges, the big things that we have to face in life. But is that really what the passage is about? 
Was this passage put in the Bible to teach us that we can face the hardships and the big moments in life confident in God? I don't think that that's not true. I just don't think that that's what this specific passage is teaching. And I think when we, when we talk about David and Goliath being a story about facing your giants, it actually cheapens the story that's going on here. Notice that David isn't faced with any challenge. David isn't faced with Goliath. Goliath doesn't come out and say, send me David to fight me. David comes to the battlefield on a separate mission to drop off some food, some cheese, to pick up a token and take it back to Jesse so that he can get back to the sheep. But he volunteers to be God's instrument here. He courageously steps into obedience, into a fight that wasn't really his. And so David isn't facing Goliath. Goliath is facing David. Goliath steps forward with the challenge. David steps forward with a challenge to his challenge, right? And so when we talk about the story as, well, you just have to be ready to face your giants. When the giant comes into your life and you have to face that giant, whether it be, you know, this big illness or this big challenge or this big temptation, you can face that challenge and that illness and that temptation firm in the knowledge that God will protect you through this. Again, that's not not true, but that's not what this story is telling. The sto- this story is telling us about a young man who is so full of confidence in Yahweh, so jealous for the honor and the glory of God that he's willing to take matters into his hands to step forward and be the vehicle that God needs someone to step in and to be the vehicle so that he can save the day. This story is about a, uh, a man, David, who is, has no doubt in his mind that he'll be victorious, And it's about a prideful man, Goliath, who has no business mocking and challenging Yahweh and his people. And David becomes the instrument that Yahweh uses to carry out his plan. And so what is this story really about? Well, it's about having confidence in God. It's about seeing things from a perspective that says that everything that happens, happens under the sovereign hand of God. That when people step up and boldly speak against God's will and God's design and God's plan, that there is actually no chance that they will be victorious. And so God can use the shepherd boy who doesn't know what he's doing to fight against the giant because God is in control. If it wasn't David, it could have been Saul, it could have been Abner, it could have been anyone in the army. All that it took, though, was someone to step up so that Yahweh could win the battle. That's the message of this story. The battle is Yahweh's. And so we can talk about facing our giants, but ultimately what we're talking about here is that Yahweh is sovereign over all things. We can have confidence in him. So there you go. Um, Let's, I know I'm over time here, so let's um, close in prayer. Any prayer requests that we can lift up to God today.